Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. It's the first of two installments for episode 11, and Graham McMillan and I talk about Wolverine, Animantium Men by Jason Aaron and Ron Garvey, Kurt Busiek's Trinity, DC's groundbreaking miniseries 52, as well as the Final Crisis hardcover, Seven Soldiers, and New X-Men, all by Grant Morrison. Finally, we wrap things up by idly speculating about the potential awful factor for X-Men First Class and Ghost Rider the movies. All in all, it's the kind of stuff you might hear from two guys who know each other too well to just sit around and talk about the weather. Except, that's exactly how we start the conversation. We hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Jeffrey Lester. Graham McMillions, how you doing, man? I'm doing okay, how are you? Uh, it, it's, well, okay, it's crazily stupid hot down here, and I, pa- I've, I was reading the tweets from someone who was complaining that it was too hot in San Francisco, which, you know, Kate and I were making jokes that that happens like once a year. <laughs> I know, well, see, this is the thing that really sucks, is everyone, everyone was like, you know, whining about the overcast weather, and we were all like, oh, God, if seriously, if we just give us some of this, like, you know, Portland-style action that everyone's complaining about, and we'll 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 soak it up. But I mean, this is the problem. Oh, you have little faith. You, that didn't work out at all, did it? It's terrible. It went from <laughs> forty degrees to like ninety. Like, there's got to be a little bit of a middleman there in order to ramp up. So yeah, we were all like wretched and miserable. And and seriously, people yesterday were so. Like, you could see everyone was in a terrible mood because they couldn't complain about the weather. Like, so it was like, wow, it's great. Like, just talking through clenched teeth and stuff. And it's because everyone just really was like... And today, when we had the second day of it, just everyone went, fuck it, and started complaining. It's terrible. It's terrible. I'm I'm glad you all started complaining. That's really what it's all about. (laughs) Um, It is, again, very hot here. Still, Uh, huh? Yeah, well, it's actually stopped and then started again, like, yesterday. We had we had a few days of it being relatively nice, um, and then just yesterday afternoon and last night was just incredibly uncomfortably warm, uh, and so I'm actually I'm recording this in what I'm calling the bad cave. I'm recording this in our basement because it's actually the coolest place in the house. Oh my god, that's amazing! I was afraid you were going to say naked, which would have been an interesting uh, podcast all its own. I'm sure, but uh... <laughs> that's the other podcast. We do. <laughs> Wait, wow. Um, so, what a uh, horrifying thought! <laughs> everyone who's ever been nice about us on iTunes suddenly takes it back. <laughs> that's, that's right. How do I retract a comment? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's crazily hot, and and I'm packing up all my damn books. So I saw what. So is this still because you're redecorating? Or yes. What's... Yes, it it is exactly what is happening to us. Um, we, we, you know, Edie has has quite amazingly moved through the rest of the house, and the the only place really left is the living room, which we knew was going to be terrible because it's where all my books are. And yeah, just somehow it's because we've got all this. You know, we're we're planning on going to New York at the end of September. And um, we also have a wedding to go to at the end of the month. It, it's uh, one of these situations where <laughs> she broke out the timetable and was like, okay, so in order to get all this done, you've got to have everything packed by, um, uh, well, Friday. <laughs> so I was I, like, that's, that's the only way Kate and I get stuff done. And by Kate and I mean that's the only way Kate tells me to do stuff. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, well, you're a better man than I, because I, I, like, pretty much all but, like, threw myself on the floor and wept. It was like when baby Huey throws a tantrum. It was really terrible. Um, but you're getting it done. See, I do the tantrum as well, but it doesn't matter. You still end up doing it, which is the point you just got to accept. <laughs> That is so terribly, terribly true, but mainly terrible. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, well, anyway, so, so yeah, packing up all these books and, like, I, I really feel like warning our, our Wait What listeners to keep their ears peeled because I could very well, like, just go insane and start asking people to, to like, you know, just send me $5 and I'll put a book in the post to them, you know? It's just... You can, it's, I, I, w- I was not joking when I said that you should think about getting rid of stuff. Because, really, I'm not joking, I got rid of pretty much everything I owned when I yeah. moved, when I shifted continents, because, you know, it's much cheaper than shipping it. And the only thing I miss out of, like, the thousands upon thousands of comics I got rid of mm-hmm. are Stephen Englehart's Green Lantern Corps. That's it. Uh, that's but, a... but really, that's, that's it. What a touching story. Really? That's it? Huh? Yeah, that's it. It's the only thing. That's um, that's impressive, and and do you think? I imagine if those had were collected, and you could order it from the Portland Library, <laughs> they're actually starting to be collected in like October or something. No kidding, really? They really are. It's um, it's the official title is like Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Three, because they've done two short story books. Right. But they're now just re- uh, reprinting the Green Lantern Corps stuff. Holy crap! So <laughs> there's a, there's a movie coming out. So. Yeah, yeah, no, but, you know, un- unlike when Marvel does its kind of incredibly crazy cash grabs, that actually seems to make sense, you know? Um, Give it time. Every single time, like, the now that DC's doing DC Comics Presents, they're, they're you know, seven ninety nine, 96-page reprint. What's, what they've been doing in those just stuns me. Have you, have you been reading the solicitations? No, no, I'm totally behind on the solicitations. So, okay, so they're, like, randomly putting these books out. It's, it's essentially a mini-trade. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not in trade format, but it's 96 pages. Um, I think it's no ads, but I could be wrong. Um, and it's seven ninety nine. Huh. And they're doing Brubaker's Batman is in there. Wow. Um, they're doing random 1990s Superman stuff. Uh, they've got something called DC Comics Presents Brightest Day, which is literally just random reprints of the main character from Brightest Day. Wow. Like, the first issue is Adam Hoffman, the second issue is uh, Martian Manhunter and Firestorm. Right. They're doing um, DC Comics Presents J.H. Uh, Williams, which is three issues of Chase. Wow, what? Wow. Yep. Doing, uh, DC Comics Presents Ethan Van Skyver, which is his Batman Catwoman miniseries with and Machenti from the 90s. Uh, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's really like, like, this is where um, the vertical, the uh, proper issue of the Warren Ellis story that was banned is coming out. Oh, it, it's one of those formats. It's, it's, they're doing gotcha. that. They're doing that backed with, I think it's just short stories from like Grant Morrison and Brian Azarell and stuff. But then in the following month in November, they're doing The Extremist, the Peter Milligan and Ted McKeever miniseries. From like when Vertical launched, from like maybe ninety one, ninety two, right, is is coming out in that format as well. Huh, it's great. I mean, it's completely random, but it's it's utterly random collections. Do you know yeah, what I mean? 
Well, I mean... Like, like Young Justice they're doing, obviously, because the cartoon's coming out. But yeah, yeah. they're, they're reissuing all the Young Justice stuff in this format now. Yeah, that's, uh, I, that doesn't necessarily... I mean, it doesn't sound terrible. Um, oh, no, it sounds great. Like, I'm really looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, and, and, and some of it doesn't sound too random, because, honestly, uh, you know, I, p- most of what I was going to be able to talk about today, depending on what we're going to discuss... More than half of it came from the library, and San Francisco. I'm so glad you said that because I have not read anything new since we last talked. <laughs> well, I've read most of what I read. It being new is in quotes, so I think I think this will be a very easy conversation for you to to to, to you know contribute to when you hear my list. But uh, one of the things that sort of um, surprised well. What's interesting to me is that the San Francisco Public Library selection is pretty skimpy when it comes to graphic novels. Like for a lark the other day, I, you know, because I'd sort of been enjoying this process of going to the branch and seeing what was on the shelves and picking things up and kind of like, oh, I'll, you know, I came back and sort of emboldened by it. I started searching for various authors that I could sort of start grabbing more of their work off the library shelves. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very, very skimpy. Like, I'm really amused. Like, if you go to, if you search on in the San Francisco Public Library system, and again, not necessarily surprising per se, if you search on the Avengers, 95% of the titles are. Are Bendis. No, Paul Tobin. Mm-hmm. Paul Tobin and Jeff Parker. That's it's, spectacular. So it's the good stuff. <laughs> it's, well, the no, all, really. it's the all ages stuff, exactly. But that's great, because, I mean, it, the, the opposite is true in Portland. It is mostly Bendis stuff, if you search for Avengers. Wow, see? And that's that's the thing that I was really, really kind of surprised. And not necessarily unpleasantly, but... Okay, uh, my first book to talk about, I guess? I, uh, uh, it, it, well, we're just going straight into it. It's like it we're crazy? focused this week. I know. It's, be- it's because you've got to do more packing, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. No, it's because I've done pack. It's like all I've done in between, like packing these books and praying for death, is trying to figure out what to talk about in this podcast. So you know. Oh well, well I've, I've got something from the library that I think you'll enjoy talking about. So you start, sir. Excellent. Um, so what I ended up reading, which uh, was kind of again, it was kind of a lark that I ended up coming across this, uh, was Jason Aaron's. Um, Wolverine Weapon X Volume 1 and Amantium Men. Um, and it's very, like, after I read it, I'm like, oh man, if they had this, clearly they've got like nine, you know, million other Jason Aaron books in there, right? And no, <laughs> they have an X Men trade and they have the first volume of Scout. And that is it in the entire San Francisco public library system. So, and and the Wolverine Weapon X is. You know, it's actually at like 10 branches or something like that. But I'm kind of really surprised that it ended up on the shelves. It, it, it reminded me of another Marvel book, and I can't remember what it was, that I, I picked up from, from the library where I really thought like, oh my God, is the only reason why they purchased this because it's like in hardcover and it's got kind of an attractive cover? Like it really was kind of a very odd... You know, like, there's not even that many Wolverine books on the shelves for the most part, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, so, Adamantium Men, Adamantium Men, Volume 1, uh, is really good fun. Um, I really enjoyed it a lot. The The premise is essentially that, uh, that a, um, 
uh, Black Guard, which is a, a sort of Blackwater-style mercenary group, has managed to get their hands on the Weapon X program and has turned a bunch of soldiers into, um, you know, full Wolverines, complete with, like, uh, you know, a nanite healing factor and, and heightened senses and, and, of course, green glowing, like, laser claws, which, you know, let's face it, that it... I, like I'm very firmly of the school of thought that uh, that kind of the dumber that you can you can get a Wolverine story, the better kind of, and um, it 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 definitely reads like uh, like Aaron's like the storytelling reminds me a lot of uh, Steve Dillon stuff, even though it's Ron Garney. There's something about the pacing and the reaction shots that seem mm-hmm. very Steve Dillon-ish, and it's six issues all at a go, as well as the the two part story that was. Uh, broken in broken across like Wolverine 75 and 76 I think that Jason Aaron did with uh, Andy Kubert it's just good dumb fun I mean it's really it's it's kind of the equivalent of reading like a trashy paperback uh you know because Wolverine runs around he kills guys Aaron's got a you know he's got a good ear for dialogue there's some some fun action scenes he he kind of does a couple of points where you know I think he kind of my, my main complaint with Aaron is is that I feel like he tends to cheat the action scenes uh, generally, and this kind of happens too. Where at at one point where he's got like Wolverine like running off into the Ecuadorian jungle, being like hunted by like ten of these other soldiers at the conclusion of one issue, you figure the next issue is going to be all sort of first bloody stu- you know type action where Wolverine does a full Rambo and sets traps and kills everybody. And Aaron pretty much takes care of that in the first two, three pages, maybe, and then goes in a different direction. Um, well, basically, that's better than when you were talking about cheating the action. I would expect the next issue would start at the end of that fight, like literally him walking away and being like, well, they ain't so tough or whatever. So yes. I, I mean, doing it in, in three pages, I think, is almost like that appeals to my sense of Wolverine. Do you know what I mean? If he really is supposed to be the best there is of what he does and what he does is punch people a lot. Right. Then sure, you know, 10 guys in three pages, that works out for me. Well, me me too, except that like you said, the kind of like him walking away going that was tough. Like it opens, it's like in media res, he's already killed off five people. It's almost like a captain's log where the guy's talking like, "Hey, oh, he already took out five of us. First it was Johnson who fell in the punji pit." And it was kind of like, "Wow, really?" So when I say three pages, I mean a splash page, a four panel page, you know, showing each of their grisly deaths and then the last page where it's like basically one guy gets taken out and then and then the, the the narrating captain dude gets taken out. So it's not quite there yet. It's not as bad as like you said, the him walking away, which which kind of happened a lot in, in Aaron's Ghostwriter run, I felt, where it's like fight scenes would be about to happen and he would do that kind of like, Well, do you think you can handle it? And then the next page is him walking out going, Yeah, I think I can, you know, that sort of thing. So he's he's semi cheating the action. Let's put it that way. I, I don't think you can really cheat the action of Wolverine, though, because I think that one of the things... Because I agree, I think Wolverine should be big, dumb, fun. Right. But I think part of that is the fights. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Or, or at least... I, I, almost, I, I think I'm going to completely contradict what I just said. Because I was thinking... <laughs> well, no, I was suddenly thinking about um, Claremont and Burns' uh, Hellfire Club story. Right. I feel a lot of that is implied Wolverine fight. 
Well, you know, I think you're right. The trick is kind of having a good balance because there's a pretty good balance of him taking out like a dude or two and then some dramatic posing and then a few people looking shocked and 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 also the great thing about an X-Men book is you can always cut away from that, have some other stuff and then you come back and he's taken care of it. That's true. You know, in this one, uh, they do have some secondary characters to take care of that. And despite all my bitching, there, when it comes time for there to be a final fight between um, the 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 biggest badass and Wolverine, uh, it, it is quite satisfying, and it takes up like most of the last issue. And then for an encore, like there are sharks involved, which I I quite liked. Um, so don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm, I'm not totally bitching. It's not, you know, it, it's not as good as like, um, for me, enemy of the state, which I just enjoyed and just a flat out, like here's as many stupid action sequences as we can pile up, but it is, it's very close in terms of being a very entertaining, like it's, it's very easy. Like you could read this enjoy it and you could also imagine how Hollywood could pick that up and go this would make a perfect next Wolverine movie let's begin the process of screwing this up and totally screw it up so um, Wolverine Weapon X Volume 1 first collecting the first six issues or so great it, it, it was a it was great fun for a library read I really enjoyed it here here's my question how's Ron Garney's art uh you know it was good. I I seem to I kind of associate Ron Garney with like like sort of rampant genericism, you know, like kind of uh I don't know why. Did he do like Spider Man in the Howard Mackey era or something like that? Uh I don't think he did. I think he did Hulk during that era. But he definitely did Spider Man with JMS. He did Back in Black with JMS. Oh, okay. Then I must um, have read that, yeah. But no, the reason I ask is I think Mackie is someone who uh, can be incredibly well served by an inker or incredibly appallingly served by an inker. Mm-hmm. I think it's his work lives or dies depending on who the inker is. But I think when he's got the right inker, his stuff is great. I think it looks very dynamic. And I think there's a, uh, I don't want to say mechismal, but there's a strength to it yeah. uh, that, that I, feel, I think is really appealing in certain types of stories. But on the other hand, like he had a run with them on JLA back in, in the last volume of JLA where he uh, illustrated, who was it? It was Chuck Austin and then Kurt Busiek. And whoever oh. was thinking at that point, it was appallingly bad. Was that that crime society? The, the... Yes, yes, oh, yes. God, that was Which, terrible. The art just did not work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I honestly think, like, with a different inker, it could have looked better. Because yeah. I, actually, I actually have re- reread the reason from the Portland Library. But... Um, <laughs> But no, it, it's because I, I dropped the book when it was coming out in singles because I really liked the story, but the art honestly was making it impossible for me to read. Right, right. I um, I remember being not so impressed with with that story, so that that's sort of why I like kind of made those noises. But the the, the actually the reason I went back to it was I was reading Trinity, mm-hmm. the the um, Kurt Music Weekly series, mm-hmm. which ties in quite firmly to. That story, so the Justice League story. Oh, interesting. Like it, it's pretty much the sequel to that Justice League. Trinity's pretty much the sequel to the Justice League story and his JLA Avengers. Yeah, I definitely sort of remember thinking that it, because it doesn't it have that one dude, the scientist or whatever, Krona or whoever, come back. Yeah, exactly. It's got like the basically the cosmic egg that ends up from um, 
JLA Avengers sort of follows through the, the other two stories. Interesting. Um, uh, Trinity is, is Trinity is another series that I think is really interesting, but I'm not sure I could say it's completely successful, especially when you read it in collection. Huh? Tell me, tell me more. Tell us more. Um, it's just it's been a while since I've read Trinity now, but um, it doesn't really. F- the pacing is very off, mm-hmm. and I think part of the reason the pacing is off is a weekly book, and I think. Midway through, the, uh, in fact, pretty much the end of the first uh, the first um, act, because mm-hmm. I would say this is a three act book, um, it ch- they change reality and there's an altered reality that does not have Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman in it, mm-hmm. which is the gimmick. I don't know if you even read that far in it. I totally uh, didn't. Did not know. So basically, Wonder Superman, Wonder Woman, and, and Batman become gods at the end of the first arc and recreate the universe without them in it. And so history is altered. Uh, and I think what happens is Busick and Fabian, I can never remember how to say his last name. Let's Nichita. say it's, yeah, Nichesia. 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 I'm sorry, Fabian, if you're... Um, yeah, please forgive I, us. I, I think they really enjoy that world too much. Mm. And it, it, it feels like there's a lot of momentum that then... There's a portion of it that where it's, you know, we're exploring this new world, which is interesting and I think completely valid, but I feel that goes on too long. Mm-hmm. And I feel that by the time it comes to essentially exiting that part of the story and getting into the third act, the, it's just too late. Mm-hmm. And it's not really, like, it's very bumpy. It, it's, I've read other things from music where it's, he, you know, he's worked his pacing out incredibly well. He's right. worked it, he's through it incredibly well. I mean, something like Astro City is just stunningly well written. Mm-hmm. Um, but even his Superman run, I thought his, his Superman run with Carlos Pacheco was really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Trinity is, is much more uneven. Uh, and it, I mean, there's lots of there are a lot of interesting ideas in there, but it doesn't really deliver on all of them. Mm. Interesting. I can I I imagine I remember reading. It's reading, you know, I think maybe Hibbs's reviews of it and things and, and really like, I should be giving this book more of a shot. But for whatever reason, every time I picked it up, there was something about it that didn't quite, it didn't quite hustle for me in the right way, you know? And I, I don't know, I don't know why that is, but um, I don't know, you know, Trinity would be one of those ones, I think kind of like 52, that would be fun to actually sit down and read in a trade like that, even even for the the kind of dry patches, I guess you know. Um, well, I, I think what happens if you read Fifty Two because I I have done that and I love Fifty Two is you discover that Fifty Two really doesn't have that many dry patches. Fifty Two right. like holds up the pacing incredibly well. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I mean, surprisingly well. You right. compare it to something like Countdown, and that's kind of unfair because Countdown is on so many levels a complete car crash. Right. But um, Countdown has moments where you can almost read the writers being like, we're going in this direction. We can't. Okay. Um, um... Give us an issue. <laughs> you know, there, there are plots that literally lead nowhere in Countdown. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, kind of terrible. I mean, it's, sorry, but 52 doesn't have any of that. Right. Well, and I did mean it sort of more in the sense of like something like Trinity. I sort of meant would be like it was it was a bad comparison. 
you're right. I think 52 would be fun to read, and it's good to know that it, it really trucks along. I remember it doing feeling like that. There wasn't a lot of lag, as I recall. But I guess I just mean that it's somehow, for whatever reason, at least for me, I feel like I can deal with a little more lag or a little more dry patch, I suppose. Um, you know, the next, the other book that I ended up reading uh, along with uh, Adamantium Men was the hardcover of Final Crisis. Um, and that was kind of, that was a really interesting experience for me because I walked into it thinking, you know what, this is going to be awesome to read as a trade. And it's kind of not, isn't it? It really isn't. Is it kind of amazing? I'm so glad you said it. I was afraid it was just no, going no, to be No, no, it's, it's true. 50, uh, not 52. Final Crisis reads so much better in individual issues. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it's so much less the sum of its parts. <laughs> I, I think, well, yes. No, I was going to say, I think when it's in single issues, you almost expect less from a single issue, and there's so much more about the momentum of reading. Uh, you get a lot of expectation of what's going to happen in the next issue that I think does not does not happen when you're reading a collection well one of the things that screwed me up is of course as I think you know in fact may have pointed out to me uh, or mentioned when you first got a hold of it is the fact that they they cut up the storyline and and feed things into it you know Um, like they, they they cut take pieces and parts of Morrison's other work like and, and sort of smoosh them into the storyline like don't they like there's something where like run isn't just an individual issue there's like a couple of panels that are like smooshed into the middle of a, a, a story page or well, something really that's not in the hardcover the hardcover is pretty much just the issues although the pacing of them is very weird as, as in like the way the placement the placement of them is very odd Huh, that's I could have sworn that they like if nothing else they like redrew that page where like uh where John Stewart gets jumped or something like that and and he you actually see him like punching somebody's fist and it sort of becomes a little more clear as to what's going on but but maybe I just hallucinated that. Um anywho, yes, there's there's the run issue which I had never read and was actually sort of fun reading in its place in the individual book. But I think you're right. There's something about a big... When you read a big crossover in individual issues, it makes sense that you're going to be missing things and you sort of assume that, like, if you were just to sort of read everything, all the little cracks would be filled in, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah. And then when you read... When I read Final Crisis, the hardcover, I was like, yeah, this this somehow seems almost more half-baked than the first time I read it, which... <laughs> Which was impressive, because I ran pretty hot and cold on it, you know? Um, I still think it's got wonderful ideas, but I think that the collection of Final Crisis actually doesn't do much many favors. Really? What, what do you think they could do differently? I would have put other material that wasn't Morrison's in there, and I wouldn't have put the special with the Tattooed Man in there. Oh, interesting. I don't, I don't think that really adds anything to it. I, right. think, I think that's pretty much just like filling in a gap that mm-hmm. you don't need filled in. I think when he actually appears in the series proper, mm-hmm. you're done. Um, I probably would have put in the Martian Manhunter memorial special, whatever it's called, Requiem or something. Right. Um, if only because as much as I think Doug Monkey drew it, I think it would sort of make the Doug Monkey elements less haphazard in the, in the final collection. I'd probably have included some material from Seven Soldiers Miracle Man as well. 
Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know, what I was going to say is what I really felt the lack of that I thought would have been wonderful is um, that two-part Batman story where he's, like, encased in the master mold and he basically, like, overthrows it all with his brain, you know? And it has him, you know... Because that's the part, like, Batman goes from getting captured to basically escaping and there's one panel where they're, like, you know... He broke our machines with his brain, you know, and it was just like, that makes no sense to anyone unless you've read those issues. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but again, I, I think that's, I think that's, I don't know, I think there's disconnects within the story that I can buy as a reader, and there's other stuff that just feels like things are missing. And there's other stuff like the Tattoo Man special, which just feels entirely unnecessary. It feels like a waste of paper. I I kind of have to agree disagree with you. Sorry, I have to disagree with you on the tattooed man piece. The reason why I like it, on the one hand, it's sort of uh, okay. The the my my biggest feeling about Final Crisis rereading it was I don't really unless I have feelings about these characters walking in the door. I don't have any feelings about these characters walking out the door with the exception of maybe Superman. Actually, with Superman, actually, and the Tattooed Man is the only guy who sort of goes through an arc. It's a heavily truncated arc, but even the stuff that's going on with the the monitor that gets expelled and is stuck in human form and is trying to remember his magic word and then regains his power and helps bring be the one that brings essentially summon all the angels and everything at the end of the universe to help defeat Mandrake, that all has, like, no impact on me. I mean, honestly, I really... It's... Putting down the Final Crisis hardcover, my my strongest feeling was, like, I need to, I need to like, PayPal David Uzumeri, like, five bucks. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> if I hadn't read his annotations, I'm not sure how much of that I really honestly would have kind of got or cared about. I mean, I would have gotten it, I def- but definitely reading Superman Beyond um, in the hardcover collection, maybe it's just the lack of 3D, but I wasn't quite as wowed by that second issue, which knocked me on my ass. And the first issue still seems like it's a lot of, uh, a lot of unnecessary filler, but, but the story of the monitors and how everything is being put together sort of behind the scenes like this whole massive inferred it's like it's like an inferred epic um that Morrison's trying to put together kind of like in in those first few pages of Seven Soldiers where the, the idea is it doesn't matter if you get everything if you read every piece uh, of uh, final crisis stuff ever put together you're still never going to see more of this story than exists like it's it's an uncollectible mm-hmm. comic you know uh mm-hmm. I think, I think it's an, it's ambitious as hell, but it it really ends up carrying absolutely no weight. And and the only way that in a way did was for me like being aware of those pieces because of David's annotations and kind of keeping an eye out for them going into it. I guess you know. So I'm going to have like 17 responses to what you just said. <laughs> Please go Number at one, it. and I'll go back to. I'm so glad you said that about Seven Soldiers because Seven Soldiers is one of the things I have been rereading from the library later. Ooh. Um, thing number two, I think that Grant Morrison uh, wrote Final Crisis as a meta comic in that way that it is 
that a lot of the power comes from the knowledge you know about other comics. Right. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good idea. And I also think that a lot of his Batman run does the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm not sure that's a great idea. Although I think his Batman run does it more successfully than Final Crisis does. Uh, three, interestingly enough, a uh, miniseries that does not have the same problem and I totally expected it to, is Blackest Night, the collection of which reads really well. To uh, so the point where if you read the collection of the Blackest Night series itself, you don't notice the gaps. I mean, you know them there because there's a chapter break, obviously, mm-hmm. but you don't think, well, where did this fight continue? Or, I wonder if in the middle of these chapters, Al Jordan became Parallax again and fought the Spectre. It right. doesn't really... And it's funny because I've read a lot of people complaining about that uh, in reviews, and I had <laughs> entirely the opposite experience. <laughs> I honestly think that it holds up so well as a collection, and it holds up much better as a collection than it did as a series. Um, wow. And... Especially, and I think I said this in Savage Critics at one point, the Green Lantern core tie-in issues, which are now as a hardback, mm-hmm. is the best example of a of like an eight-issue crossover um, that does not need any other comic at all. Interesting. Pete Tomasi writes it essentially as eight issues that go straight into each other. Mm-hmm. All you need to know is someone else has come up with like zombies who are in space. Right. That's pretty much all you need to know, and that's it. And he gives you eight issues that flow into each other, do not cross over into other books, and have resolution of their own, yet still allow for the resolution in the main series. Interesting. It's, it's astonishingly well. And what's interesting for me about that is, when you read them single issues, they read like shit. <laughs> because, they were, because they did flow into each other so much. Right. So you like just I, I, gen- like... I generally was like, you know, where's the story going? And when I read the trade, I'm like, this is perfect. This is the way everyone should do crossovers. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's very strange. Getting back to Seven Soldiers. Seven Soldiers, I am beginning to become fairly convinced, is like Morrison's last as, a, as like a great comic structuralist. You're right. I'm willing to believe it because the more I've thought back on Seven Soldiers, the more brilliant I just generally find it. Seven Soldiers on rereading, um, honestly, just impresses me more. It's mm-hmm. better than I remembered. Mm-hmm. The problem with Seven Soldiers is every single collection, to my mind, fucks up the collections. Right. I, w- I don't want to see the stories in the order which they're released. I want to see the stories in like clustered together as a series. Yeah, agreed. And, and I, I think doing it the other way, it, it really detracts from from the, just the the, um, the perfection of each series because mm-hmm. they don't they don't flow into each other, right? But the issue the series themselves do. Mm-hmm. So that if you had if you were only reading Clarion, for example, mm-hmm. if you had all four of those issues together, it would be a much more coherent experience. Agreed. Or if you had um, Zatanna. Because mm-hmm. Satana is actually really well structured, or Shining Knight, or Bulletier. Mm-hmm. Any of these mm-hmm. things, and they work together, it would be a better reading experience than reading it the way the collections have it right now. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of annoying for me, but at the same time, I, I, I cheated. I got the collections at the library at once. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's so good. It's, and it really is like, it feels to me the last time Morrison wrote without. I don't want to say irony, but without one eye on the, hey guys, I'm writing a metacomic. Well... I, I don't get me wrong, I think he is writing a metacomic, but I yeah. think 
beatable on another level. I think everything he's done since then, including Joe the Barbarian, which I think is the best thing he's done since then, mm-hmm. is so aware of its own cleverness mm. that it doesn't work on another it doesn't work on a stupider level for putting it. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think ex- precisely what you're putting your, your finger on, the, the stupider level is, is precisely it. That all of those pieces of seven soldiers, to me, they he, he hits the exact right amount of shorthand, I suppose. You know, I mean, I really feel, I, I think I might have apologized if this is just something I keep coming back to again and again and again, but uh, uh, that Morrison is trying to develop a, uh, the writer's equivalent of cartooning, almost, you know, where he's trying to, to create, like, the perfect shorthand stroke, you know, in dialogue or in script form to be like, that's Superman, that's Batman, this is the character, like, what's the minimal amount of information do I need to feed you that you get that sense of this is the story or this is the character or here's the feeling that I'm supposed to feel without, without giving it to you. And I feel seven soldiers really does for, for the most part, it sort of ebbs and flows and you've got people I think have their favorites, but you've got a book, you know, to me, both guardian and Frankenstein barrel along and, have bits of emotional resonances that that I don't necessarily find as much with, say, um, Shiny Knight or uh, uh, Zatanna, for the most part. I knew you were going to say Zatanna, and I was going to say what surprised me most of all by rereading was just just how much I got emotional resonance from Zatanna this time around. Interesting. And before I think I was just like, this is a great book. Look at the art. It's spectacular. But um, looking at it now, and it's kind of funny because, you know, Zatanna is now being done by Paul Dini pretty much as a classic Zatanna, quote unquote. There's something so much more appealing to me about her being not washed up power-wise, but washed up emotionally. There's something I find just really appealing as a reader about the person who has decided on her own terms that she has made the wrong decisions about her life and because of that is unable to be a superhero mm. interesting because it starts and I'd actually forgotten about this it starts with Satana bringing um, her quote unquote perfect man to life mm-hmm. and her perfect man is someone who was not was an equal to her but the only problem being she brings someone who's an equal to her and is also trouble because she likes the wrong man quote unquote Hmm. Um, and it starts with her apologizing for for liking the wrong guys, hmm. and and that's just a pattern that repeats through the series. Like her relationship with men repeats through the series. Really, how, how she views her relationship with men repeats through the series. And I I don't know if I missed this the first time around or I just forgotten. But I, wow. I I'm reading it again and like wow, of course that's what the series is actually about. Huh? I'll be damned. I I do not remember that myself. Also, Seven Soldiers just strikes me as uh, the closest Morrison is ever going to get to writing female characters well. Mm. I, th- I think Grant, and I love him as a writer, I think he can write two, maybe three female characters outside of Seven Soldiers. Right. I think, for example, his Jean Grey in X-Men is pretty much Ragged Robin from The Invisibles. 
pretty much exactly the same character. <laughs> um, no, really, I, and I think uh, Emma Frost is his Lord Fanny from Invisibles, and I think he has these stock voices for female characters that they're either bitches or they're nurturing, and if they're nurturing, they also happen to know more than you do and can save you in some way. Interesting. Um, and I think that Seven Soldiers is the time when he actually looks at that, and you get, you know, you get Justin in Shining Night, mm-hmm. who was gender ambiguous shall we say yes. um, out of necessity mm-hmm. and then pushes away her, her gender or you get Satana who is comfortably a woman if that makes sense like there's no I'm a woman I'm a superhero it's just like you know I'm a woman and I also happen to be a superhero but you know it's just me I'm not making a show of it or you get Bill which is all about yes. you know superheroes gender stereotypes mm-hmm. um or you get, at the start, uh, I, I think the whip is what the character's called, the, the, mm-hmm. the one superhero. Yeah. Who is, you know, who has a, a, a fascinating relationship with the men in the group. Again, it, it's, it's about how it relates with the men. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff in here. Or you've got Carla in, in, the Gar- in Guardian. Arc. You know, you've, there's so many things in there. Or you've got um, Lady Frankenstein. Wow. Dude, you know, there's, there's, there's so much. There's so much in there, and it's so about. And I can't remember who it was. Someone, maybe Ragnar, online when Seven Soldiers was had just finished, mm-hmm. um, pointed out all the maternal relationships within the series, um, whether it's Zatanna and Misty or the Bulltier and and the the young girl who is turns out not to be a young girl at all, mm-hmm. uh, and you know all of those things. And it's just, it's so much more layered. Um, and so much less arch than what everything Morrison has done since. That's very, very interesting. Um, you know, it's, I, of course, I'm still like <laughs> slow guy that I am. I'm like, don't you feel that like Emma Frost ended up being like Morrison, like flipping the character from the bitch character into that entitled maternal, like the the not entitled, the nurturing character that knows everything about you thing? That's. <laughs> I mean, that's basically yeah, yeah, what yes she does with Scott I mean, in that, right? I, I, I got a uh, yes and no. I think she still stays. I think she does to Scott, and I think to every other character, she doesn't, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly, which, which is totally fine with me. But I, I did think, like, oh, my God, that's completely, you know, the, descript, you know, the description of the relationship that, that Emma and Scott do end up developing in the course. Of but I think what, what I, one of the things I genuinely love about uh, Morrison's X-Men is that Emma is to all stereotypical purposes the wrong woman for Scott. Right. But to be more realistic about it, she's entirely the right woman. Okay. And I think I think uh, the best thing about Morrison's X-Men is that it confronts, and not just with Emma and Scott and Jean, but also with Magneto, it confronts the very cozy comic book view of the world. Mm-hmm. with reality to the point where you see that Jean through no fault of her own is entirely wrong for Scott right through no fault of her own mm-hmm. and that and that neither of them want that to be true yeah but it is you see that Magneto is just a terrorist mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like it doesn't matter how noble his purpose is he's a terrorist and I think that's really important and I think it's very sad that the reset button was hit so quickly on that I think it's really sad that Jean has since become deified again 
Right. You know, I, I, and the, the Emma, everyone who's written Emma since, including Whedon, including Fraction, their Emmas are so much flatter than Morrison's. Yes. Because the thing is, with Morrison, Emma was still really fucking around with Scott. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. she, like nowadays, Emma is the nurturing partner for Scott. Right. But when you read Morrison's, she's not. Like, Emma is quite clearly messing around. It's, well, it's, just, it's just that she knows that it's the right thing to do, but she's not being nurturing. Not, I mean, maybe potentially in the last storyline, but that's it. And know, every point up to then, she's doing the wrong thing on the, for the right reason. Right. Or, or, or doing the right thing for the wrong reason, maybe. Which I think is, is the part that, that, again, sort of reinforces the idea of why they're right for each other. Is, is that her form of manipulating Scott and sort of forcing him to grow up and deal with things is stuff that she's doing you know I, I, because it's what she wants oh yeah you know? yeah um, but it's also I mean Emma's essentially giving him therapy right he he is not signed up for it right but exactly. that's pretty much what she's doing yes, for the exactly. entire series yeah but part of that I think is that the difference between Morrison's Emma and everyone else's Emma is Morrison's Emma would continue to do the wrong thing because she knows it's right for him. Whereas everyone else's Emma will like go behind his back and you know hook up with Norman Osborn or mm-hmm. you know whatever, almost for like femme fatale reasons. And then when she's find out she's apologized, she'll apologize and she'll be like, ah, "I didn't mean it." Do you know what I mean? Like it, it feels much flatter, a, a much boring characterization. Yeah, I, I I can I can imagine that I've skipped most of those, but um, I, the one thing that also really struck with me that I felt like at least Whedon didn't seem to get at all from from Emma is that that Morrison put in there that I thought was such a stellar understanding of the character is her innate overcompensation. You know, when she basically talks about herself as as being a flat-chested teenage girl that nobody paid attention to, kind of. Like, on on the one hand, it, it, it almost smacks of stereotype, but the core of insecurity that motivates her um, is something that I, I sort of feel like people don't get, or they don't... They, they get it... If they take it, they take it in too obvious a direction. I feel like Morrison was able to figure out ways to make that secu- insecurity work in very, uh, in very complex ways, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and and I don't know if other people are doing it. And boy, I, is this the wrong time to say that I really cannot imagine January Jones playing that character for the life of me? Like, in any oh no, I I um, I did a, a take on thing which is essentially a joke, saying you know, hey, you, Betty Draper's a bitch as well. Oh, but I think <laughs> I think she's horrendously the wrong choice. <laughs> And part of that is, um, I just don't think January Jones is a great actress. I think she's been really lucky with um, the part of Betty Draper, but I don't think she's a good actress. Well, she, I, I, I will, I will. The closest thing I have for hope is that I feel like she's, she also has worked hard and grown a lot because I thought she was a. The, the jump in her acting capability just in that one role between season one and season two is pretty profound. 
Like I really thought like season one, there was stuff that where I was just like, Oh, she's not a very good actress at all. And almost at the beginning of season two, I'm like, Oh wait, she's been taking action lessons, acting lessons or diction lessons. Or like all of a sudden she was able to like get through a long line without looking like she was going to pass out from, you know, not knowing how to breathe through it. You know what I mean? So did you see her Saturday Night Live? Oh God, no, no! It's, it's it's really, 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 really horrible. I mean, really to the point where you really feel bad for her and you wish that someone would just have pulled the plug. <laughs> she she was just she was not ready to do live television. Yeah, I, what were they thinking? Like, how did that happen? Like, was it well, some she, sort of? She weird... was on a really, really, you know, it's a hot show, and John Hamm had been on it a couple of times, and John Hamm had killed. Yeah, but John so, Hamm is like he—he's, I mean, he's a talented guy, but he has comedic chops. I mean, he'll talk about that. People, in theory, know that about him. I thought, you know, like well, they, well they had they had her on, it and it was it was really not good. Oh God, oh that is, just, I can't even imagine what the sketches would be like. I may actually have to go to YouTube and see if there's. I could only I find watch. one on YouTube, and all it was is the, the start. The bit at the start where I swear to God, she looks off camera and says, "Is the camera on? Where's the camera?" <laughs> oh my God! Because I was looking. Don't you worry, I was looking. <laughs> I'm 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 I don't know what I'm more horrified by the fact that you looked for that or the fact that that apparently was what they thought was the best most allowable clip to leave on YouTube. That's terrifying in all ways. <laughs> oh Sorry, God. are you excited about X Men First Class then? Oh, who isn't? Who isn't? Uh, no, I'm. Hey. I, yes, <laughs> you know I was paying no attention to X Men First Class, and the thing that actually cracked me up is a like the daily PR stuff that I seem to just generally have half an eye on seems so desperate, you know, like, Hey, we're doing a sexy spy thriller. And like, it sort of seems like every, like depending on how well the, the superhero movies are doing in the box office, it seems like they have a new way to try and figure out how to spin it. You know, they're like, oh, we see it as more of a, it's almost like a Bond movie with superpowers. And I'm, what? And, and, but the lineup is so odd. Like once they said that, you know, Brubaker's Darwin is going to be in there and like a Chuck Austin character. And I'm just like, what the fuck are they? It's not just a Chuck Austin character. It's Nightcrawler's demon dad. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like one of the worst storylines of all time. And it's like, Kevin Bacon is the bad guy. Oh, I know. That's great. Who's he playing again? Sebastian Shaw. Oh, right. Sebastian Shaw. Yeah. And then and then you've got January Jones as, as Emma Frost. Yeah, that, I mean, really is... I mean, who knows? You know, like, maybe they'll pull something out of their ass that will be really great. If they do, I suspect it will not have much in common with an X-Men... With the X-Men, you know what I mean? Like, it's not going to be easily mistaken for... You know, doing the man oh, from it, Uncle it's, with it's superpowers. Going, yeah, it's, it's going to be um, going to be if nothing else, a reboot for the movies. Because <laughs> it's it's going to be nothing like the other movies. And also, to be completely anal, it's fucking up continuity for the other movies as well. Well, yeah, I would think that it must, right? Because well, just... Emma, Emma Frost appears in the Wolverine movie as a kid. 
I, I, and, and Wolverine's a kid? What? No, no, she appears in the Wolverine movie as a kid. Oh, she does? What? <laughs> really? Like in the flashback when he's like in no, World no, no, War no, 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 Oh, you obviously not seen. <laughs> no, no, no. Are you kidding? I didn't bother to see that piece of junk, the Wolverine oh, it's, movie. It's, just... it's a classic. It's trust me. It's it's a beautiful movie. It, it, she, <laughs> she the, the plot is basically, or the plot is not basically. The plot involves Weapon X is kidnapping mutants, and amongst the mutants is teenage Cyclops and teenage Emma Frost. What? Like. What? Oh, okay. So this is supposed to be the X Men, the Wolverine movies, like a prequel to the yes. X Men movies. Yes. I see. I, that still sounds really dumb. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I will. I have. It's not like I'm an elite film snob. I've watched plenty of terrible movies, and we'll watch more very shortly. But I, I like the Wolverine movie was one of those things where it was just like someday I know I'm going to be in a hotel. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's what the Wolverine movie really says to me, is like, someday I'm either going to be in a hotel or a sports bar, and I'm going to watch the majority of this movie the way that it's meant to be viewed, which is with the closed captioning on and with some sort of, like, alcoholic beverage near me. And that, I I see no need to have to try and make that happen. It will happen on its own time. You know what I mean? Anyway, uh... Wow, so they're going to... Well, no, I mean, yeah, of course they're going to... I don't don't know. Everything about it is like, I really... I think at this point it's a tough call what's going to be the more terrible movie, like Ghost Rider 2 or X-Men First Class. I mean, you would think that Ghost Rider 2 would really have a huge leg up uh, in that the first movie was god-awful and Nicolas Cage is coming back after having appeared in like... 37 movies in the last four years to pay off his tax debt, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. You know, on the other hand, the guys who did Crank are going to be doing it, and it's Ghost Rider. Maybe it could work. Everything they throw into X-Men the first class really does make me think, like, what what are they trying to do here apart from maybe like, rebuild, like, restart a franchise that has absolutely nothing in common with their previous franchise of the same name, you know? And I, I don't, I don't quite see the point of that. Did they like do testing like after the no, third no, X Men movie I think, or something? Well, I, the third X Men movie pretty much killed the franchise. Yeah, that must have killed it pretty dead. Um, and then I think they were just like, "We want to make this movie, and we don't know what to do with it." I mean, really, I, I think that's it. I think that at some point, someone went in with the let's tell the origin of the X-Men. Oh, there is no origin. Um, okay, let's just make one up. What do you want to do? <laughs> the worst part, Graham, is you could probably go on for like 80 minutes like that and completely construct the movie. Okay, what do you want to do? Well, first thing I want to do is I want to put in Nightcrawler's Demon Dad. Okay, done. And I kind of want to see January Jones in a bustier. Okay, we can work that out somehow. What else? I don't know. Is there like some sort of like weirdo mutant that we have whose ability is the ability to like develop whatever power he needs to survive? I don't know. Let's look in the comics. Like I just, I think... I, I'm sorry. It's it's the X Men. They've been around for thirty years. Is there a mutant who? The answer is yes. Well, see, that's the thing that's crazy. <laughs> Somewhere to me. the answer is yes. You know, I mean, I just find it hard to believe that somebody actually and. I, you know, I, I I felt like I was the only person on the planet who actually liked uh, Brubaker's X-Men Deadly Genesis miniseries. 
someone else apparently read it. Who knew? Like, you know, like, hey, who is that Dar- guy? Dar- Darwin is now in X-Factor. Oh. Dar- oh. Darwin's now a regular character in X-Factor. Oh, maybe that's why. So he's just actually a character that people could stumble across and go, who's this guy? Yeah. He, he seems popular. Yeah. Huh. Hey, wow. De- Deadly Genesis, like, spun out a lot of material. No, it, it was, I remember being, like, really surprised by that, A, well, I mean, like I said, I liked it, but it was an X-Men miniseries that felt more like the regular X-Men title than when Brubaker finally got his hands on the X-Men <laughs> really title. Did, didn't yeah, I just don't know like how... switched them around. <laughs> he really did. He was like, okay, well, so now that I've shown with a miniseries what a great grasp I have of the characters and the continuity and what's happening in the world... I'm going to, like, do a 13-part epic in space with, like, a character with a big sword. Enjoy, everyone. You know, really keeps you on your toes, that guy, I have to say. But uh, I, love, I love that he did that, and then he did, like, five parts of, like, the X-Men back in, in like, being X-Men stuff. And then all of a sudden it's, like, you know, the aftermath of Cyclone, um, and then he's gone. Yeah. He's like, you know what? I really, I don't really want to write this book after all. Yeah, yeah. There was a little bit of that, and I mean, I can't, I can't blame him. Like, again, the thing that amazed me was, again, as as an audition, X Men Deadly Genesis really hit a pretty good sweet spot. I thought he, I thought he did a a pretty nice job of showing, like, you know, how to fit his kind of, you know, old school chops into kind of what they were doing with the X Men, and then. And honestly, you know, big spacefaring epic is also sort of a weird staple of the X-Men for better and for worse, I guess. So I, I can see where his idea of going with that kind of had some interesting possible payoffs. But boy, it just ended up being like a, a, a slow boat to nowhere, really, which is kind of a shame. Hey, it led to um, Realm of Kings. <laughs> I can say that because I know lots of people have um, a lot of love for the Marvel Cosmic stuff. But, um, like, well, I think it's great for what it is, but I just can't get into it. I, I should give it a try because I definitely remember the penultimate issue of uh, of Reign of Kings being described to me, I think at San Diego a few years back, by uh, Lance, Carla's husband. Like incredibly detailed explanation of the leading up to the penultimate issue, and uh, or leading up to the final issue of it. I was like, I gotta say that sounds pretty cool. I'll have to check it out. And then I'm like, gosh, maybe I should Google that and see if it's in the San Francisco Public Library. If they don't have that, you should try the Annihilation books, the crossovers that um, got the whole cosmic thing restarted. Uh, yeah, you know, I. That's the other thing that bummed me out is I. Didn't, I wasn't really crazy about the Annihilation stuff. I read all the individual it's, miniseries. It's, well, it's, the cosmic stuff is pretty much like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's that's a great primer of what the cosmic stuff's like. It's not that different. Well, I kind of thought that it might be a little bit different because, uh, and maybe this is going to sound a little um, naive, but I felt like uh, Keith Giffen was hands were just a little too much on the Annihilation, the main oh, miniseries. Oh, you, you should read the other one. You should read um, Annihilation Conquest. Uh, Annihilation Conquest? Yeah, which is the second Annihilation crossover, which has, I want to say, no Giffen. I'm pretty sure the main writers for that are Dan Abnett and Andy Lannan. Huh. And it's it's completely Marvel continuity. I mean, right. it's insanely Marvel continuity. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, we've got Annihilations book one, two, and three in the San Francisco Public Library system. Uh, then we have all of Battle Royale, Blue Beetle, I Love Halloween. I'm looking at Keith Giffen. Keith Giffen has 33 titles in the San Francisco Public Library. And that says a lot about San Francisco Public Library. It does. Well, it it looks like it looks like Battle Vixens is at least uh, eight volumes of that. Which oh, I guess he did the English adaptation. I was going to say, what did, what did he do for something called Battle Vixens? I know it was news to me, right? I mean, I guess it was the same thing as after Battle Royale. They were like, hey, Keith, we've got like another book called Battle. Exactly. <laughs> how do how do you feel about doing all of our whenever anything called Battle comes in? Keith is our guy. That guy knows how to translate the word battle like nobody's business. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, okay, well, so on my to-do list, we have Final Crisis, Kachek, and Wolverine, Adamantium, and Kachek. And wow, is, is this a good place to stop then if we finished your list? Uh, Should we stop and then come back for a mini episode? Yes, we should, because it's been pretty much it's an been hour. been an hour, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll come back and uh, I'll give you a call back in like two minutes and then we will talk about more stuff. We'll talk about the book that I said at the start. Hey, I want to talk to you about this. And then we never talked about this episode. Sorry, listeners, that's a tease. (laughs) (laughs) We plan this out so well, don't we? Well, I speak for yourself, man. Everyone knows that you're a tease, Graham. This was news to me. I thought we'd already discussed that book. Damn it. No, 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 no. It wasn't Seven Soldiers. No, it wasn't. See, that's what I thought that it was. Well, keep us on our toes. Just you wait. And listeners, just you wait.